0: When the goal became one single-minded, it just became tunnel vision, and it felt very dark. It felt like there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and it's survival. you got to make it to the light. Excellence is about spin and excellence is a requirement for to
1: come culture. Welcome to Unfiltered Athletes, I'm your host, Leo. In this podcast, we go behind the scenes with world-class athletes to reveal the untold stories of their journeys. From grueling training sessions to mental strategies to achieve greatness, get ready for a raw, unfiltered look at the world in this in this of sports. In this episode, I talk with Valeria Tsoy. Valeria is a snowboarder who competed in the 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi, representing Kazakhstan. Her career and post-career are a model of resilience and grit. She went through lots of lows, like the risk of losing her funding one year before the Olympics, to amazing highs when she achieved country-wide fame and recognition a few weeks later following Olympics qualifying trials. After a disappointing result in Sochi, and due to a lack of support from her federation, Valeria decided to devote herself to helping athletes transition to their new post-career life. She underlines the importance to keep fun and excitement to be able to get good results. And her journey into snowboarding wasn't love at first sight, to say the least.
0: My dad started to snowboard first, and I saw him just tumble down the hill because there were no YouTubes or any video courses at that time, so he was learning as he went. And I was looking at him while alpine skiing. And I thought, I will never do that. Never will I ever. And then two or three years later, uh, he ordered a Burton secondhand snowboard from Austria. And so they delivered it. And, uh, you know, it it was a bizarre experience. But I just remember that... um, I really didn't have a choice at that point. I was just so comfortable on my skis that I was just like, yeah, you know, I'm just going to stay here and uh, I'm quite confident and everyone loves what I do. And my dad was known for pushing me just a little. Uh, He was leading by example, but man, I did not want to tumble down the hill when I was already racing on skis. And so that was my memory that I saw that snowboard and I kind of understood that I really had no choice because I got to grow and my growth started with coming out of uh, very comfortable skiing to very uncomfortable snowboarding.
1: Okay. So how was that first experience, that first, very first time on the, on the snowboard disaster or not?
0: Um, well, he didn't take me up a big hill for the first time, so it was okay, i it was a little claustrophobic because it felt like my range of motion was restricted because mm-hmm. of the bindings and uh, I didn't have an experience much of skateboarding. I wakeboarded before, but a wakeboard felt a little different just because you're holding on to, uh, to the rope, you're like kind of positioned differently. And so there I was like, yeah, I'm not sure if I'm going to continue. And on my first season, I broke my wrist. Falling uh, actually in powder, I ended up breaking my wrist and everyone was like, oh, she's going to quit. You know, this is her first experience. She broke a wrist. She's going to quit. And then the next season, everyone was like, so what are you going to do? Skis or snowboard? And I continued to snowboard.
1: Okay. So was your your dad practicing at a high level, kind of elite, or was it just uh, doing that for fun?
0: My dad has a history in sports. He was on the Olympic team for the Soviet Union for alpine skiing. Okay. So he skied his entire life, and then I skied since I was three. Okay. He loves new things, loves experiments, and that's why snowboard kind of came around. I think he saw it on TV somewhere. And so he managed to get it, and he was the first one in the country to actually introduce it. And I kind of followed suit because it was inspiring. I really wanted to keep up with my dad because he was my role model. And uh, originally it was for fun just to try something new and explore Mm -hmm. the backcountry snowboarding kind of thing um, versus, you know, seeing the Olympic goal right from the get-go.
1: Yeah. Was there already uh, an Olympic discipline for snowboard at that time? Or was it just the very beginning of snowboard? Because it was, uh, what, 30 years ago, you say? And it it was one of the first in the country. So was it even at that point an Olympic discipline?
0: I frankly don't think so because I wasn't even interested in professional snowboarding whatsoever. I was kind of in my own bubble and I was enjoying what I did. Um, I remember the first races of snowboard cross and Alpine, and, and those disciplines were fascinating. Yet, snowboarding that was introduced to me was more of a backcountry, you know, off the grid kind of snowboarding, uh, woods exploration and powder riding.
1: Okay, and, and was there any sort of uh, expectation on the family side for you to you know, be an elite athlete at some point or or not really seeing your father being on on the the Olympic team?
0: I can't speak for them. I don't think I've ever felt any pressure to become uh, an elite athlete, although I was involved in all sorts of sports from the early age and I was on every um, sports team in school, whether it's basketball, volleyball, swimming. Uh, track and field, boy, you you name it. It was just like any activity, I was there. And so I had a very diverse kind of experience. I was also uh, dancing in one of the best teams uh, in the city, and I was performing as well. So I can't say that I was pushed in one specific direction, but uh, as I was studying in school, I was in private school. So we had psychologists on site that were guiding athletes, not athletes, sorry, guiding students into a career, some sort of career. And I just remember that I was constantly drawn towards sports by the psychologists, by the teachers, just because it came so easily to me and was a talent yet I resisted it for the, for the longest time because there's a stigma that athletes are not as smart as, you know, other studios people. And I succeeded kind of on the studios level and in sports, and I was able to combine the two very easily. And so for the longest time, I was in, in this kind of... Uh, Indecisive place where I knew that I can be. At first, I wanted to be a dentist. So I was like, Well, I want to be a dentist, but I know that it's going to require a lot of time studying. And here I am, an athlete that something just naturally comes to me. So where do I go? And in the end, I didn't go into dentistry. I went into marketing and I studied and uh, trained at the same time. And my professor of politology, the politics, Uh, came to me and she said, how long are you going to do this for? And I'm like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, at some point you got to choose. You're still kind of trying to sit on two stools at the same time. you got to really make a decision. I'm like, oh, my gosh, what was going on? And then um, I was studying in a different town in a different city. Um, I finished to be the top student of the year on my first year. And then they said, I'm taking a break in the university, came home and told my dad that I wanted to be a snowboarder. And everyone was just like, oh my gosh, what? You know, the top student school, top student university just drops it all and becomes an athlete. And that decision at some point came very easily because it felt that I could study at any time. And I didn't need uh, any specific schedule and I could pursue any knowledge I wanted. Meanwhile, really being physically active as an athlete.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and were you, uh, I mean, when did that moment come? You said after university, so you were 18 ish, I would say. Yeah, I was 18. So between the three, when you start snowboarding and 18, there's a 15 year period. <laughs> that you just uh, keep snowboarding, but just for fun, or was there, You know the beginning of a competition mindset, or you know growth-oriented mindset that uh, you you felt was growing. Uh,
0: There wasn't a professional pursuit, as majority of people would imagine it. I still did lots of sports. I still competed. You know, uh, in all the other sports that I listed before with my school, snowboarding for the longest time was just a hobby, something that our family did every weekend however long we had the snow for. And then at some point there was the first um snowboard cross competition that I've been invited to. And there was no age restriction, it was only the gender restriction. So the girls competed and the boys competed. And um I placed second. It was fun, but at the same time it was new to me something that was a hobby before now became something serious and then one day um my dad just walks in and says we uh, worked hard on putting together a new sport and then and a federation association mm-hmm. of sports and so now it's a legal entity It's established Uh, we have a coach uh, who is a former alpine skiing coach attached to the federation, and we're now putting together a team who is going to be a better trial kind of team to see how it does. So uh, that way, I ended up being on a team with two more boys. And uh, we went to Austria for our first uh, camp to learn how snowboard camps exist, operate, what they teach. And um, in my school, I studied in German school, so I was fluent in German. And when we went to Austria, I wasn't only the athlete, I was also the translator, I was the connector, the uh, mediator, all of that stuff. And so it was also interesting because it was, I was grade 11 at that point. And I went there to uh, be an athlete, but somehow ended up almost taking charge of the entire procedure of the camp of the organizational, administrative logistics, everything. And, um, yeah, that, that, that was the beginning. And so, um, my difficulty with that was that, um, I, when I was graduating from school, I graduated with two diplomas, um, one from the German Uh, side. So you qualified in Germany for me to then go to university and then the other one from Kazakhstan uh, to to stay in Kazakhstan and kind of graduate there. Uh, And for that, I had to take a test where the judges from Germany flew in and uh, students from our school would uh, directly interact with them. And my camp, my snowboard camp was landing exactly during the time that my test was there. And so I've studied all that time uh, for that diploma so I can then, uh, you know, see my future in Germany or get a higher education in Germany or something like that. And so I came to my principal and I said, you know, I have an opportunity of my lifetime with snowboarding. And I have this uh, that I've studied for so long. And uh, I'm also the face of the school And so she said, you know what, you go to your camp, we'll figure it out. And so I went for the camp and the camp was one month. And I came back and my principal gathered all the judges, again, just for myself alone. And I was able to get my diploma and I was able to uh, do snowboarding. And uh, that was kind of it in the sense that At that point, I didn't need to choose one over the other um, when it came to studying. And that allowed me to pursue both without having to feel guilty uh, for one or the other, because I find that I was facing an inner conflict where some expectations are that, you know, you are a worthy citizen when you go and get secondary education. You know, you graduate from, from some fancy university, especially when you have the means and the brains for it. And then the other part of me was um, facing the talents that I naturally possessed. And then um, also the skills that are already acquired that were helping me in sports. I was thinking, well, Choosing one or the other is like splitting me in half. I'm no longer whole. You know, I I really wanted to preserve those two, and uh, I ended up still preserving the two. Even when I took a break in university, I found myself still studying. And then they thought, well, I'm, if I'm still studying, I gotta do both.
1: But is so that's pretty much when you're you're 18. So you you want to excel, right? You seem like a person who wants to succeed, uh, like on the school side and on the sports side. But I feel like at some point, and it's true for everything, and I compare with my own stuff with my real business and the podcast is, my real business is what, you know, brings the money in where I spend 40, 60 hours a week. And it doesn't mean the podcast cannot grow, cannot be successful, but it's still the second step. You know, when I wake up in the morning, I need to think about one thing first, I know what it is, and then when I have a bit of time, I do the other stuff on the side. Is that what, what happened, clicked in your mind when you said, oh, now snowboard is my thing and I'm going to study at night or whenever you know, time allows?
0: You know, when I went um, for the first uh, snowboard camp, my range of responsibilities and impact was so much larger than my impact in university or I- even the community within within the university that I felt so much bigger mm-hmm. being an athlete and being the team captain and being the ambassador, so many things. I I felt more free being an athlete, still utilizing my... Academical talents, my knowledge, I was still growing personally being an athlete, just not in a very structured university schedule. Um, you know, I, I was still learning a lot, even though I was just talking with people. But I find that travel is one of the best education mm-hmm. y- you can get in life. And that's where I was like, okay, I enjoy the community of sports so much. And it was just so different from what I imagined it would be that I decided to really dive in and dedicate myself to sports at that point.
1: Okay. Uh, so what what did it really mean in your day-to-day? So did you move uh, at that point? Did you just you know double uh, the training with an objective to get to the Olympics or World Championship? What really changed uh, on a day-to-day when that decision was made?
0: At that point, I didn't have a goal of becoming a world champion, an Olympian, any of that stuff. I just really kind of focused on where I was going with the flow. If I, let's say, decided to go north. You know, I knew I'm going north, but I didn't know: am I going north and that's the next mountain, or am I going north and that's the Olympics? I was just kind of flowing with uh, with what I was presented with. And at that point, um, what it was is there wasn't much money in this sport. Uh, a lot of that had to be financed by my parents. The coach that was originally appointed didn't really connect with the sport. So my dad stepped uh, out of his business and let it run itself and became my coach. We gathered more athletes and then we started going to Siberia and train at minus 37, minus 40, where your toes are just black and frozen. You can't feel it. And uh, you've got icicles on you know, the, um, forget it better. I forget how you call the, uh, the chairlift, the, 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 whatever. Anyhow, the, the conditions we were living in were not Spartan. Like it was tougher than that, Mm -hmm. but just the excitement of the adventure of the pursuit was so grand and so fulfilling that it never wavered me. I never thought, oh, this is too hard. I don't want to do it. You know, you would, I instantly felt the spirit of athletes and sports, even though we had athletes from all sorts of um, levels. We had the beginners. We had some seasoned athletes. Uh, We uh, did some local competitions uh, with the Russian team who are really tough athletes and who some of them come from really rough backgrounds. So it kind of uh, shows in the way they interact, even if they're friendly. And so that to me, I, I suddenly you know, came out of my bubble and I saw the world. And the world was all the different people, all the different athletes, different approaches, different coaches, different equipment, different snow, different temperature, different humidity, all sorts of things. And then you're like, it's like you've been in the cocoon your entire life. And suddenly you see how big the world is. And that was just so inspiring that I continued doing that because that inspiration was really fueling me. I didn't have to push myself to go into that cold. I didn't have to force myself to work harder. It kind of came naturally and um, I didn't need a motivation. It, it, it kind of was already there. That was life for
1: me. Mm-hmm. And, and so it seems like you very much uh, um, appreciate the journey itself, I would say more than the end goal in a sense, but was your, your whole career just made out of enjoying the the process, all that training and all that, or did you have some sort of silver lining and like one end goal that you were chasing in a sense?
0: I remember the time where we were competing and we were slowly progressing from Europe cup to world cup. Uh, And Then we suddenly were in a rush for the World Cup. And I was asking my dad, I'm like, why are we rushing for the World Cup? You know, we barely competed in the European Cup. And he said to get the license to the Olympics. And that, to me, became suddenly apparent that there is something bigger. There is an end goal. There is an end destination. And that, to me, didn't sound like anything grand in the in the sense that it's unattainable or unachievable. Mm-hmm. I was like okay well the olympics sure fine. And that's where ignorance is bliss. I did not realize how many hoops you've got to jump to to be able to get the license to be able to get the invitation to world cup all sorts of things. I was just like okay well I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing. It looks like I'm In the flow, it looks like we're progressing because, sure, a lot of doors were closing uh, for myself uh, when it came to governmental support with finance or sponsors or any of that stuff. But it never felt like it's a dead end. There's a door that's closing. There is three doors that would open up. And, And I still had the choice. I could do this. I could do that. And so it never felt like I am stuck. It, there was always some movement going on. And when he said, oh, it's the, the Olympics, I f- remember the first pressure came to the point where we were, we're um, mid-season and then the government, the sports committee uh, sends an email saying that if we don't qualify for the World Cup, they're pulling all the financing and we're done in the middle of the season. And that's when I saw you know my dad being really concerned and then my teammate was also thinking you know what's going to happen because um you know she sacrificed a lot for the career and that's when when the pressure started coming in the fun started coming out and it was it was The view before was 360. I was noticing everything around me, what was happening. And so I continued to learn, excel, master my craft. When the goal became one single-minded, it just became tunnel vision. And it felt very dark. It felt like there's a light at the end of the tunnel and it's survival. You got to make it to the light. You wouldn't notice anything yeah, around you and now years later actually last year i was talking with my dad i said you know what? um from around 2010 until 2014 i barely remember anything that was happening outside of uh competition and so, and then looking back at my results i'm like oh my gosh where was this competition? I don't even remember placing sixth, you know? I don't even remember placing 10th. Wow, this is a really good result. And so I also realized that when I focused on that one goal, I didn't notice my great successes. I didn't notice uh, anything around me. I didn't create memories. Because at that point, uh, I don't think we had too much storage on our phones. And then you have that little phone that barely takes any pictures. And I didn't carry any camera with me. So um, there's a little bit of regret now that I don't remember that time of my life because I was so focused on one single goal. And I didn't notice anything else, no life around me, no celebrations, no adventure, no travel. And, and today I find that um, that goal setting really killed the joy for me inside the process.
1: That's, yeah, that's very interesting. That's crazy. So the moment you have that one big top goal, it's when you stop enjoying, not yeah, stop enjoying basically the process and just whatever you do. It starts with fun and then it kind of becomes a bit more of a job and then uh, something you have to do, right?
0: It, that was exactly that. Um, my first attempt to qualify for Vancouver Olympics, um, I didn't succeed. There, there were multiple things that, um, weren't timed right. You know, I got qualified for World Cup a little too late, where I had a little too short of a time to gather enough points. And it it was still just my first uh, season on the World Cup. But then Sochi 2014, um, we were still approaching uh, the Olympic season. And at some point I remember uh, there was a training right before the World Cup and it felt really good and it didn't make any sense. You know, I couldn't explain what I'm doing, but my body just knew exactly what to do considering all the environment that I was racing in. And I remember I was arguing with my coach, with my dad, and he's like, this is terrible. You know, you can't race like that. You can't do it. This is how you should do it. And at that point, um, I know that we were again pressured by the Olympic committee in Kazakhstan that, you know, we had to make it uh, a really good result. Otherwise, the money was pulled. So that was a standard procedure in the comedia where there was constant pressure, pressure, pressure. And a lot of the times, the way they've done it is that they would tell my dad, you're spending your own money right now on traveling and camps and competition. Mm -hmm. If she places well, you're gonna get reimbursed and you get your money back. If she doesn't place well, it's all at your own expense. And so my dad had to pull their my parents' retirement savings, my mom's and dad's retirement savings to be able to facilitate that without having to go to the bank and get loans and stuff. Um, And then that could be something like $50,000. And that's a lot of money to be just thrown away and gamble on my race. So it wasn't just the pressure on him, it was pressure on me, but it was double pressure because uh, pressure is coming from the Olympic committee but then pressure me potentially wasting away my parents' savings. And so with that I um, well, we continued to race and then there was this time that I was racing and like I feel really good about how I do now. And so uh, my dad was arguing with me and we just didn't see eye to eye. And he just goes, You know what? You're racing on your own tomorrow. And just so you understand, when, when you're racing, generally the team would have a serviceman who is preparing the boards for every single run. You had a physio, you had a coach, you had a technician, and you have a doctor. So I would see all these teams having at least four or five people staff behind them. And then it's just me and my dad. And I was like, Okay, fine. And then my dad leaves, and he's like, "You know what? You're on your own." And the next morning, I get up and I go, and I'm racing on uh, by myself. And just so you understand that the race day is from eight a.m. until five p.m. There's a break from about uh, t- uh, twelve to one thirty, but then from then on, it's just go, 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 go. Um, and that was my best best result ever. And I just Remember thinking that I was just so tired of pressure at that point that I, uh, pardon my French, just said, fuck it. I don't care anymore. They can send me home. Uh, I'm just so tired of being afraid that I can just, I just want to break free. And that's when it happened that when I finally let go of all that pressure because I wasn't racing for anyone anymore. I wasn't racing for the sports community. I wasn't racing for my dad, for my country, for for anyone. For, and um, I just wanted to experience that joy that I once had for myself. And that's mm. exactly what I did. And that yielded in the best result. And that's uh, after that result, I had, all sorts of sponsors call me, all sorts of politicians call me, all sorts of TV channels. And I was like, okay, well, I've done something right.
1: And is that what qualified you to, to the Olympics? Is, was that in that time, that time period?
0: It instantly qualified me. Right. It qualified me even if I didn't race anymore all the way until the Olympics. Okay. And, and that was very liberating because that allowed me to race again very freely with enjoyment.
1: And so how, so you were in 2014, I think the first, uh, uh, Kazakh snowboarder to compete in, in the Olympics. Uh, how did that feel? Was that like an achievement for you or because you did it, you kind of let go in a sense. It was just whatever, an, a new event, but not really, you know, the thing that you hoped you could, uh, could reach.
0: You know, it was interesting because I qualified a year, exactly a year before the Olympics. And that year was such a transformative uh, year because back then social media wasn't as prominent as it is today. People weren't as familiar. Uh, And I certainly wasn't ready for an instant thing. And I became famous overnight. Uh, I had multiple interviews. Uh, You know, I had to go to TV channels, I was published in all sorts of magazines. And then Um, social media uh, was very rich with trolls and uh, a lot of people behind the screens that Mm -hmm. would just pour all the dirt out. And I really didn't know how to deal with it. And I remember that being really daunting and they had no one to go to because Nobody really had experience with that, and they didn't have any psychologists or therapists that, um, you know, could kind of work with me, mm-hmm. and I, that was difficult. And then money just poured on me from the government, from the sponsors, and that, believe it or not, felt very difficult. I felt that th- there was some kind of premise where if we give her more money, she's going to compete better. And that wasn't the case. You know, it felt like, oh, uh, we didn't give her money for nine years before, but now if we give her $2 million, she's just going to be, you know, on fire. And that actually did the exact opposite to me because I was like, well, I don't even need that much. Like, why are you giving it to me? And so it was crushing weight of uh, free money, so to say. I felt like, I wanted to deserve that money and there was discrepancy between how much I thought I was worth and how much I was doing mm-hmm. and what uh, what was given to me. What I didn't understand that I only saw myself self through the lens of just an athlete and I measured myself by the performance at the uh, at the race. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, okay, if they're giving me so much money, I got to go for gold. I got to go for gold. Uh, but what I also didn't see, I was the ambassador for the country. I was ambassador for the sponsors. I had, at that point, the best image, the best athlete image in the country. You know, I brought out something that completely changed people's minds. And I didn't see value in that. And Nobody also showed me that value. Looking back at it, uh, me being more mature, um, I'm able to recognize that. But back then, nobody said, you know, oh, well, it's not only that uh, you're performing, you're bringing awareness, you are multilingual, you're able to give interviews to so many different magazines and channels in so many different countries, and it's the image of the country that you are carrying. None of that was apparent to me. And that's why I had the pressure to perform. I had the pressure to be worth the of the money I was getting. And in the end, I find that my measurement, Of myself, that I'm only worthy of all that money if I place first really crushed me before the Olympics because I got so sick when we arrived uh, at the Olympic Village that nobody could do anything. And unfortunately, we arrived really close uh, to the race time. And uh, I arrived in the middle. I didn't see the opening ceremony or the closing th- ceremony because I arrived um, right in the middle and they left before the closing ceremony. Mm-hmm. And, and so for me, it was uh, so much pressure that I think my physiology couldn't handle anymore. And my whole system just collapsed. And then I went to race barely holding on. And I was like, okay, great. I just spent you know, nine plus years, uh, waiting for this very moment to realize that there's nothing I could do to really give it my 110% because Mm. it was stuck in that, um, pressure. And interestingly, I be, before then six months prior to the Olympics, I found the best Canadian sports psychologist And luckily he was here in West Vancouver and uh, I I was paying something phenomenal, like $400 an hour to, to be able to work through that. And now being all experienced with how therapy works and uh, being educated on that, I don't know what that guy was doing. He had, you know, the best diplomas and everything. But all I remember we were doing is meditating and breathing and imagining that I'm on the shore of an ocean. And I was just like, okay. And I remember his last um, words. I was Skyping him the day before I raced. And I said, look, I feel so broken. I feel so weak and I feel so incapable. I don't know what to do. And he looks at me and he goes, I believe in you. You can do it. And I was just like, oh, well, okay.
1: <laughs> so that was it. And that didn't really help you And uh, for, for the actual the actual race.
0: It didn't help me for the actual race. I still don't know if we were doing anything. I, I mean, um, usually they say the premise of a psychologist uh, is to calm you down. And then it's the therapist the, who is actually working with you through your mental blockage and all of that stuff. Um, but I was, uh, obviously struggling at already at that point to recognize that I need help, that I don't know enough at that point to be able to power through that. And I don't, it's partially what drew me to where I am right now, because I was just so frustrated with that experience because, um, the person I was working with wasn't an athlete himself. He was uh, mostly a team sports, I think, consultant, but he has never played the game himself. He was never involved in sports. And I don't think he understood where I was coming from, or maybe it was even cultural difference. I, I really, I did my best to try and rehabilitate himself in my opinion in, in my vision, but I really couldn't find at least one hook I could hold on to to say, you know, he was doing his best.
1: And so... After the Olympics, how long after the Olympics did you uh, decide to retire? Was that right after or a bit later? And was that linked to that, you know, kind of you were down and about to have to leave because of many reasons, then getting to fame, then getting back to a state where you were not really satisfied with your result and everything. So did that spark the, 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 the wish to just end it and, and, and move on?
0: I actually didn't want to end it. I thought that I gained so much experience from the first Olympics that I, at that point I knew exactly what I would be doing for for the next season. Now, the difference was that um, my sports committee said, okay, no funding for the next two years. You can take a break for two years, come back in two years. And I said, well, I don't understand that. I have to continue preparing myself. I have to race. I have to uh, keep my standing in the World Cup to be able to progress. Yeah. They're like, it doesn't matter. So two years come uh, to us in two years.
1: Were they the same ones that were, I don't know, sending money to you when you... Uh, oh, did- Totally. Okay, yeah. Okay. so yeah. they thought it was just like a one-year period when you needed money, and then it's just fuck off for three years and then come back for another year, right? They, that, I,
0: that's pretty much it. Quite that, understand that's the, pre-
1: the real process.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, 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 that was kind of the logic. And then I said, okay, I'm going to try and train on my own and we'll see what happens. I tried looking for more sponsors, but that was it. After the Olympics, everyone dropped me and I was like, okay, I have some savings. I'm going to try to continue to do what I do and we'll see what happens. A few months later, the sports committee calls and says, hey, uh, there's world championships happening. We need you to go. And I said, okay, um, so what what do you want me to do? They said, okay, you got to pay for all your expenses. And just like usual, we're going to reimburse you after the world championships. I said, okay. So I bought everything. I booked all the flights. Everything was non-refundable because it was quite short of a notice. And then the world cup of the world championships, get canceled because of lack of snow i believe it was in austria so i called the sports committee and they say hey the world champions got canceled i've got all the, the these bookings what do i do they are like, no no world championships no reimbursement and i was just like i was speechless i said fine okay um I rebooked everything. It was non-refundable, but I could still rebook everything. And so in the end, um, me and my boyfriend just decided to go on European trip later in summer. But then the World Championships got reestablished a month later in a different country. So the sports committee calls me and says, Hey, do you want to go to World Championships? And I thought it was just a joke. Just a joke. <laughs> and at that point, I just thought that it was... So immature, so stupid that I didn't want to be part of that uh, circus anymore. It was just something out of this world. And I thought that I'm just like a puppet and I didn't want to be on those strings anymore. And I decided to say that I no longer want to be part of it. Mm. And then they still called me and I, I was still a celebrity for a lot of the um, brands, but I just felt so hurt and so used and kind of um, really disrespected in the sense that I decided to really close off and not do anything. And the weird part was that at that time, somehow I completely missed all the sponsorship opportunities that were just Flowing my way. Um, It was years later that I discovered that this brand contacted me through Instagram and it just went through some kind of spam folder. Then I discovered multiple emails where people were trying to reach me, offering me contracts. But my mind was so programmed on the government having to give me the permission to raise or give me the funding to raise that I was just focused on getting that part. And didn't notice all the other good things that were happening around me. And that's when I understood that um, I think throughout my career, I was just so narrow-minded in how things can be done that I didn't notice any other ways that could have been done and all the opportunities that were going my way that would liberate me from being attached to the sports committee and having to depend on them for funding that, um, I was like, oh my gosh, well, it, it it is really an experience. And I'm just glad that I was able to recognize that that was the case because, um, oftentimes when I work with athletes right now who are just sitting in that rut, um, being very desperate for one certain outcome and so when we start looking at different avenues that the the person can take there's a multitude of them and I understand that if I didn't discover that through my own experience I wouldn't be able to show it to other people mm-hmm. and and being so certain of it.
1: And so are all these experiences and, and disappointments the reason why you started with what you started uh, after your career. So I'm transitioning to that, the, the today part of your, of your life, which is, um, the athletes resident agency, residence agency. So can you explain on, yeah. When did that, um, idea or did that goal uh, come to you? Was it while you were still um, competing or did that happen later on because you also faced, you know, issues when you were transitioning from competition to the, the after career?
0: Um, again, when I started really drilling into the problem and figuring out what was wrong with me because I was like, well, something is happening. Something must be wrong with me. Well, where where am I not seeing or hearing things? And uh, there has to be an explanation to the things that are happening with me and around me. And I definitely wasn't looking at establishing my career uh, in that field. What ended up happening is that I had So much knowledge already by the time I was retiring in the sense that, like I told you, the majority of teams would have staff behind them that Mm -hmm. are educated, experienced, uh, ready to help. For myself, I had to do it all on my own. So I had to study kinesiology, I had to study sports psychology, I had to study, uh, you know, traditional, non-traditional medicine that would enhance my performance, but not break the rules of doping. So all of those things, because I was working for myself and doing it for myself, I really got to the bottom of things because my career depended on it. And I wanted to be able to rely on myself and my own knowledge and be able to find proof for s- certain things. And a lot of the proofs were experiential. Um, uh, it, I, I've lived through it. So nobody can question me on whether it's right or wrong. I, I don't care if it's right or wrong. I know that it happened. And then when I accidentally retired, um, I was, I closed off and I, in my mind, pretended that sports never happened. I kind of took everything I knew. I was entrepreneurial ever since high school. And I kind of took that and I went with with it. I completely erased the whole notion of sports because I just couldn't handle the, the volume of it that I needed to process. Um, that happened. And I was just so hurt because it happened so suddenly and unexpected that I just decided to take a pause and I didn't want to be in that environment anymore. So a lot of the times when people would ask me, you know, who are you and what do you do? I wouldn't even mention that I'm an Olympian. And my boyfriend was like, oh my gosh, you're a celebrity. Why don't you use it to your advantage. And I didn't see it as an advantage at that point. And I said, well, what's the point of being Olympian if I, you didn't place one to you know? And so I kind of, um, pushed it in the back corner, but then I went and, you know, I had my business, but then, um, we were two entrepreneurs and we were planning for a family and my now, husband, at that time, boyfriend said, you know, uh, maybe it's a good idea for you to explore corporate see if you like it. And so I went and I explored corporate and uh, I learned a lot from that, but I definitely knew that I didn't want to be in that environment anymore because it did feel very much like sports. You are an employee. You are dependent on somebody else's decisions. You are... Um, you know, inexperienced. And so by the time I gained enough experience in the corporate where I felt very confident and very knowledgeable, I was able to kind of say, okay, I'm able to venture on my own and, and, and start my own thing. And with athletes, it came very unexpected because at some point, a lot of athletes, um, actually Canadian athletes started reaching out to me to just chat. And they were like, well, you retired. You've been retired, you know, for five, six uh, years now. Um, Can we just talk about it? And when we talked, and I don't even, I I wasn't posting anything. I don't know why they felt they need to reach out and just chat. Um, But I would spend, you know, an hour or two talking with them. And I just understood that everything they were going through, I definitely went through. So after I spoke with about 10 people, Uh, hearing the exact same messages, I thought, well, okay, Uh, it's actually happening, but nobody is talking about it. Because I felt very lonely on that journey, because I felt that it's only me who's going through it, that it's something wrong with me, that I'm, you know, experiencing all these ups and downs, you know, uh, melancholy and complete denial. But when I spoke with them, um, I thought that that was very interesting. And a lot of them were starting to ask advice, you know, what do I do now? What can I do now? Where do I go? Uh, You know, what are my opportunities? A lot of them uh, were outcast from... um, Teams, you know, some of them had disagreement with coaches. The other ones uh, wouldn't be so open in sharing why they got kicked out of the team. The other ones were just not uh, aligned with the the messaging that the Olympics were pursuing. You know, the other ones were not aligned with sponsors that were dictating what kind of message the sport is relaying to the public. So uh, there was a lot of pain, a lot of anger, a lot of frustration. And it felt that um, I didn't judge them for that. And I think maybe that's why they, they were speaking so freely about it. And then I just started sharing what I did. You know, I, I, I started to share how I ended up, where I ended up, you know, what were my revelations, what were my, um, tools that helped me? Because in the end, um, I found that I had to really reverse myself back. Everything that I learned in high performance at that point was really to drive you, you know, find something that's going to push you forward. And I had to rewind back to the default settings, who I am without the push, who I am without the external motivation to do something and, and kind of fight somebody else's war where fight for something that wasn't mine. Um, and then really kind of rebuild myself from there. And as I went, I I would share that. And I saw that the process um, of just talking about it and telling people my own story was very therapeutic. But then when I understood that the more people, the more athletes I spoke with, the more I found out that just getting a job wasn't solving the problem Mm -hmm. because there are so many organizations, whether it's the Olympic committee, whether it's, uh, you know, national association of something, something, they kind of place the athlete and they say, okay, we took care of the athlete post-sport. We found them a job. They're good to go, but nobody really traced what happened afterwards. And for the majority of the athletes that I spoke with, they didn't last even a year at that job because it was such a different setting. It was such a different culture, different everything, and they just didn't fit in. You know, their communication style w- was, like, alien. Uh, their routine was completely off. And so what I, I found is that it's not so much about um, – The placement just fit them wherever they want and they'll adjust to it because um, the athlete is already a person by the time they retire from sports Mm -hmm. with their own wants, needs, uh, requirements, uh, molding. I decided to approach it from the point where I study the athlete so thoroughly that I understand them better than they understand themselves. And then I know so many companies that I worked with, uh, whether they're clients or not, that I've researched myself. And they I actually reached out and said, hey, look, I want to understand how your company works because I might have someone f- for you that is fitting perfectly w- w- with the culture, with the skills, with everything. And so I realized that Understanding the underlying needs and currents, both of the company and the athlete, will make it a better match Mm -hmm. than just looking at the check marks on the resume. Because a lot of the times, athletes who were placed in the proper culture where they fit, on the resume, they actually lacked a few skills and a few diplomas and a Mm -hmm. few certificates. But when you place matching cultures matching parts, they they instantly have a connection and there's no denial that they learn in that environment, in that nurturing environment faster and more willingly than in an environment where they don't belong.
1: And and do you think in in that sense, Athletes are one category that's different from anyone else in a sense because I don't feel there's any other field or activity where you do something that is time limited and when it's done unless you go into coaching or whatever in the sport world it's a complete change of life right if you're a singer, if you're an actor sure whatever, you can extend your career. There's no age limit. Um, if you work in just corporate, naturally there's no end limit. If you're an entrepreneur, then you can just bounce back on another project. But when you're an athlete, you, you do your career 100%, you're an overachiever, you want to be the best. But when it ends, again, unless you decide to go back to amateur or stay in the in the, the sport to coach and stuff like that, if you don't do that, you just your life completely changes and you go back to a 9 to 5 or anything. So, yeah, do you think athletes in that sense are completely unique and there's no other comparison? And that's why it's important for someone like you who have been through it and have moved and have changed life in a sense to, to be there to support them.
0: Well, athletes know themselves as athletes for their entire life. Yeah. When we start discovering what an athlete is, is generally that it's a very narrow field that even the athlete sees themselves. Mm -hmm. When we start exploring their idols, whoever that is, we can start seeing that the athlete can be so much more. And just like I mentioned that I was solely focused on my value as an athlete in terms of performance and they completely missed my values, the ambassador, as uh, the image holder of the country, all sorts of different things, then we're able to combine a more wholesome personality that allows them to get into the other world. It's almost like, I, I don't know, I'll show you how so if this is the world for example and this is the athlete you know part of the athlete can be an entrepreneur and then it kind of links to the other world and so it doesn't have to erase this part but it it has a hook where mm-hmm. they are able to occupy a certain space w- within the in their system uh, usually i don't go into scientific explanation of you know, what happens in our neurobiology, you, um, even if somebody asks me to, I usually give, uh, a metaphor or something like an image. And I generally say that an athlete is a system and the world is a system. And so you, if we make the athlete a proper, uh, if we define the shape, we, I don't mold them into anything. I don't structure them into anything. I, Take them as they are, but at least I define them. And once we define them, they're able, with certain capabilities, click into the system. So, for example, if you're a bolt and uh, there's a motor in the car, there's a certain shape of bolt that is needed. Mm -hmm. But without that bolt, the motor won't go. So I know exactly where that bolt fits, And then even if they don't understand who they are, once they are in that motor and they see that by them being them, they make a whole machine work, that is very rewarding. So it's more intuitive for them. It's more systematic for me, just so I can kind of, you know, structure it for my own sake. But I don't overload them with information because a lot of the times I find that information can be more daunting versus just see how it feels and they find that athletes are very good at feeling themselves you know how is my the body never lies and that's the best thing about athletes is that the majority of them are very grounded in their body, and they are able to, you know, feel the twitch, feel the rush uh, of of blood, uh, feel the temperature change. And once they know that, we're able to see, you know, how their body um, unconsciously responds to the environment. And it's just so phenomenal because then I don't need to teach them psychology, I don't need to teach them psychiatry, I don't need to teach them physics or any of that stuff. I just say. Let's observe the body for, I don't know, seven, 10 days. And you just journal your bodily sensations. That's all it takes. And then when then we're able to decipher it. But the majority of them, for the first five days, they know exactly that how they feel. Mm-hmm. A- and that's usually one of the best predicaments about um, whether they're going to thrive in the environment or they're going to uh, become more stressed.
1: Do you have a few examples of athletes that you matched with a company, a role, and a specific job, uh, so that we can kind of put a, a name and a picture on on the overall idea of uh, you know matching uh, retired or, or recently retired athletes with their next uh, their next uh, um, occupation or uh, challenge.
0: Um... I should have asked someone before this podcast yeah, okay. if they so, would be okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can give you an example without the... Uh, without the, a name, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah without yeah, a name. Of course. So, uh, so I I had an athlete who um, was very much, much into gaming and I was able to introduce them as an intern at EA Sports. Uh, but uh, that was just you know, and in because I asked for a favor to have them in as an intern. And then I presented it to the athlete to go and just see how you feel and see um, if if what you think you like is what it it is exactly. So I was able to place them into that environment. And it wasn't even a month uh, before they were just best buddies with the entire you know, department. They were hanging out after hours and it was just that one uh, kind of barrier to overcome. It's usually that uh, one step that is separating perfect match, right? It's just to get in and get introduced to, um, to the right people. Mm -hmm. And so after that, I didn't need to mentor them as much. I mean, um, when athletes are residents of the residency, they have lifetime access to come in and ask questions, ask for advice, ask for feedback, be a sounding board. And sometimes things come up like, oh, I don't know how to deliver these news or I don't know how to ask for this. And then we kind of go through it and then they go and uh, are more prepare to have certain conversations, whether it's uh, with colleagues or their bosses or management or the company altogether. And so um, they come to me for that, um, where the other um, kind of work that I do is that I um, teach them how to properly communicate, teach them the culture, teach them a certain outlook on how businesses work and uh, what's the integrity. You know, how they study the business to be more aligned with where the business is going and where they're going. Um, but this specific athlete with EA Sports uh, was a phenomenal match. The reason why I say that is because it was one of the lowest positions because it was unpaid internship. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of how it worked. But uh, just because how, how fast they progressed within that environment and where they are now, you know, two years later is pretty amazing.
1: It's it's super cool. And it's very interesting now that you you talk about that because in my company, I hire people, but it must be also surprising for the employer to have someone that's whatever, let's say 35, 40 years old. That's kind of, it's his first job. It's like, quote unquote, like with big air quote, like he never worked before or she never worked before. Well, that person worked twice as hard as anyone in the corporate world, but you have someone that lands here, doesn't have, doesn't understand the codes of, how you know corporate works and the politic political stuff that might happen and again yeah how you show up to a meeting with a superior and stuff like that so yeah there's a, a whole training uh, some some sort of intangible things that you just acquire along the way but when you're 34 20, 35 40 and you land your first job it's it's not just it doesn't just uh uh, become natural the, the the first day you're you're on the job so that's yeah that's very uh, interesting and that they have access to a, a pool of, of other athletes and yourself to uh to learn learn those stuff uh, so that more of the, the that's more on the corporate side and I think you also um, mentioned to me the first time we, we chatted that there's a another side of your business when you where you help athletes start their own business if you think or if they say that they're not made for the the corporate world so can you yeah explain a bit more about that uh, that side
0: um i don't think anyone is not made for the corporate world i find that it takes courage not to be (laughs) yeah really really (laughs) um i i find that it takes courage to be an entrepreneur and um uh, one of the biggest things is that um at first i usually say no if, uh, the athlete worked in the corporate and says, I, I want to come and start my own business. I usually say don't, and I've deterred so many people from that. And a lot of, uh, people are not supportive of my approach, but I started, uh, businesses on the wrong foot and lost a lot of money on it that I Swore to myself that I'm not going to let somebody else ever, you know, start on the wrong foot in a sense of uh, out of spite, in despair, um, I don't know, being fed up with the boss that they can't communicate with and all those sorts of things. So for me, the main premise is that if they come to my accelerator, I say, you go and watch all the free content there is in the residency. And then see what you come up with. And I usually give them at, at least three months. I'm like, I'm not going to talk to you for the next three months. Go watch that, think about it, sleep on it, You know, come to me again, and we'll, then we'll talk again. Because I find that I would be doing a disservice to someone uh, if they're not ready to do business from a point of abundance of their heart, of their passion, of their um, love for what they do, and instead do it that, you know, I'm going to show them I can do this better. I'm going to, you know, uh, I'm sick and tired of getting scolded for my mistakes and things like that. Uh, so I, I really need them to kind of calm down before. And so with, uh, with the businesses, It's really where you stand and who you surround yourself with. Um, I also don't recommend usually doing first, uh, you know, businesses. And anyhow, I've been told that my first business is going to fail and I didn't believe it. And I tell my athletes that the first business they do is going to fail. They also don't believe it. And uh, I'm just... It's nice when you have multiple people share the vulnerability of actually starting something and failing in front of other uh, comrades, so to say, and they see that it actually is happening, that you have to test it, you can go all out and have an end goal in mind of having you know, an empire, whichever empire that is. And so baby steps are important. And it's, it's a nice structure where uh, the ones who are more experienced now in the entrepreneurship are able to um, mentor the upcoming Uh, generation. Mm -hmm. And so it's nice that it's no longer just me telling uh, the stories and explaining why things don't work and why they uh, should work the way they should. Uh, You have multiple more people who are saying, you know, this is what happened to me. You know, Val said that this is going to happen. I didn't believe I I tried it myself. Well, here's 10 more examples for you that it actually is, you know, I'm not a fortune teller. I'm just uh, someone who experienced it before and shares my experience.
1: That's that's very interesting. Uh, so it's it's fun because of the people that I the, the athletes that I've interviewed so far. I would say twenty percent, if they are still in their career, have at some point mentioned during the discussion what they think will come next. But a lot of them don't necessarily know, and they you know live day by day, and they also still t- try to reach their sport career main objective uh, so i think or, or i hope maybe uh that so, some or many of them will uh come to you at uh, at some point uh for uh, for you to guide them for their their after career um personally for you what uh what would be success in the next two years what would you consider to be success
0: what would i consider success professionally anything I would love to see a thriving community that is just like a hive that is self-organizing, that is self-nurturing, that is very supportive to one another and works in, in collaboration. And, uh, I, I, and only needs gentle guidance, but in essence, it's a, organism that is very balanced and very vigorous and energetic.
1: Very cool. Um, If you could see um, 10-year-old Valeria, she's in front of you. You have two minutes with her or one minute. What would you tell her?
0: To my 10-year-old or my 10-year-old to to myself now? To my 10-year-old?
1: You to your 10-year-old.
0: Me to my 10-year-old.
1: And vice versa as well. First, first <laughs> I'm be asked that question.
0: <laughs> you know what? I would not deter her from doing anything different. I'd be like, "Yeah, you know what? It's it's awesome. You know, don't be afraid of any of that." And um, I don't think I was afraid when I was ten. I, I honestly, I liked who I was at ten, so <laughs> I wouldn't change anything. Okay.
1: Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. So I have a question from. Ten-year-old Valeria, who will ask today, Valeria, Valeria, sorry, what is the the tattoo on the uh, left uh, left arm about?
0: Oh, she'd know because oh, it's yeah? my yeah, my dad's name is Lev, which is lion. Okay. And so uh, my mom's favorite flower is rose. So I have royalty here where one is a carnivore and is an animal and the other one is a uh, vegan, (laughs) (laughs) but but still very, um, you know, grounded and very um, honorable uh, piece of nature.
1: Nice. So she would know. She would know what it is. She would
0: know sleep. exactly what it was. Yes.
1: Okay. Perfect. Um, one of the closing questions that I like to ask is, and you probably have many <clears throat> many of them in mind. Um, if uh, if you had one Canadian athlete, you would uh, uh, think would be a good guest here on the podcast, and has at least as good as uh, a story as yours. Uh, who would that person be?
0: Canadian. I would say JCJ Anderson. He has a very compelling story.
1: Okay, JCJ Anderson. Just...
0: And he's actually in Quebec. So oh. you guys would be very close to each other.
1: So, what was he? Uh, what what uh, sport did he uh, practice? Uh, I don't know the name.
0: Al- uh, uh, Alpine snowboard. Yeah, yeah. And uh, know him personally, interviewed him uh, personally myself. Okay. So, I I know his story, know his outlook. I think he's a really cool character, very spirited.
1: Okay, I will look him up. I will look him up. Perfect. Um, So, for people listening, whether they be uh, athletes or not, where should they uh, follow you? Because I found you on LinkedIn uh, somehow. I don't know, probably (laughs) an athlete that liked one of your posts or something like that. Uh, But yeah, where should people follow you?
0: Um, LinkedIn is is good. Um, Instagram, sure, but i don't post too much um maybe the best way to uh, contact me would be either through the athletes residence or at uh, valeria
1: okay so i'm just gonna write put in the notes uh, website ig linkedin fair okay yeah sweet um uh, and the very last one uh this one as is, is more personal, so I'm building at my cottage up north 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 of Quebec um what I call a museum of sports, where I ask every uh um athlete that I interview if they have any uh, piece of gear from their career or anything that you know is at the bottom of a drawer and or about to be uh, thrown away if uh if you would have one to uh, to complement my uh museum of sports
0: Wow. Uh, i'll send you like a
1: pre-labeled envelope or something oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no
0: i i actually have a few uh it depends what you like but uh i can think of a few
1: whatever I can mean... be sent uh through a canada post uh <laughs> envelope <laughs> totally so not a, yeah no board but uh, <laughs> anything yeah smaller.
0: yeah yeah no i can do that Perfect. I'll find something
1: out. Wonderful. Uh, thank you so much. At the beginning of the call, I told you it's usually 40 to 45 minutes. It's an hour and 15 minutes. So <laughs> there were so many more questions, uh, but that's uh, that will cover most of what I, I think was very interesting. That was a great interview, different from what I used to have. And that's wonderful. So thank you so much for your time. And I wish you uh, the best of the best.
0: Thank you, Leo.
1: Thank you. Bye-bye. If you're still here, it's probably because you liked the episode, right? So if you want the podcast to grow and get more exceptional athletes, you can play your part by following us on your favorite podcast platform and on Instagram at unfiltered.athletes. It really helps us. And until next time, enjoy life.